Thank you, Moss ladies. Uh, I did miss a few words, though. Do you mind singing that song? Uh, I think that was about the lyrics of five songs put into one. That was that was really good. Is this Corky's? Can't walk this earth alone. Is that true for you? Well, good morning. We're in Matthew chapter 2. We are continuing our study on prophecy. Matthew gives us four specific prophecies that he points out in relation to the birth of Christ. We're still on the Christmas story. This is all what we would know of as a Christmas story. Um, Won't be here. This is actually the last Sunday we'll be in the Christmas story material because... Uh, after chapter three, Matthew just takes off and we immediately get into John the Baptist and then the life of Christ. And there's no turning back after that. Um, but the sermon title is eight ball corner pocket. And that's just a parallel. If you weren't here last week, you might be wondering uh, what's up with the pastor and these sermon titles. But it's just a parallel on if you think about an excellent pool player or, or a pool sharp, then. What they can do is examine a table, and they're so good that no matter where the balls have landed, close to the pocket or whatever, they can master that table. They understand um, the angles, pressures, force, everything that needs to come into play to master the table and call every shot. And when you think about prophecy, that's basically what God is doing. He is... He is able to read the universe, master the universe in such a way that things are going to happen because he said they're going to happen. In in essence, he's calling the shots. And so he called over 300 shots when it comes to the life of Christ. Matthew just talks about four that pertain to the birth of Christ because that's what he's introducing us to in these first two chapters. But you think about all of these prophecies, if we could point in the Bible to one unfulfilled promise, that would be a flaw in God. But what we find time after time and not all the prophecies that God made are fulfilled. Now, the ones in Christ uh, so far are, although he's coming back, that hasn't happened yet. But the ones that can be fulfilled are fulfilled Because when God speaks, he tells the truth. What I want to do is go ahead and read verses. I'm just going to start with verse 13 this morning instead of going back to verse 4 because we've read that before. So let's read what Matthew has to say to us this morning. What does God's word have to say to us this morning regarding these prophecies? And how does God want our hearts and souls to respond to this material? Verse 13, Matthew chapter 2. Now, when they had departed, talking about the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. 
Then what was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So you see that uh, Jesus' life was the unraveling, the unfolding, or the revealing of prophecies. Now these four places, they're geographical locations. We already looked at Bethlehem and Egypt last week. All four of them come into play when it comes to the birth of Christ. They are significant because they have to be lined up perfectly in order for Christ to be who he says he is and who the Magi say he is. And I think we can say who Herod thinks he is. Otherwise, Herod wouldn't be so upset and feel so threatened about this person who is uh, being called the king of the Jews. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the most convincing forms of evidence when it comes to believing in Christ. If you think about all of the things, the events that go into just one episode, when something happens today, it's because something happened yesterday. What something happened yesterday because of what happened before. You know that the ripple effect that things have emotions. Uh, you might you might have been in a, an accident and you might have said to yourself a, a millisecond to the left or the right. And this would not have ch- turned out the way it did or my life wouldn't have been spared. I mean, we witness things every day that are so close. And if you think about all the decisions that humans make, all the different directions that history could go, all the different ways that things could happen. And you will see that it is practically unfathomable that all of these things, even just these four, uh, were fulfilled by Christ. It's a lifetime. It's a all of existence has been waiting for these things to happen. Christ fulfills them. I almost did a sermon just on that word fulfillment. I just happened. I thought, what does it mean fulfilled? It's something you look up in Scripture. It's there all the time. For some reason, I thought, let me just look at what that word means. And I started, I wound up with three or four pages. And I said, nah, he's got to get this chapter two. There's a lot of more chapters to study. So I just put it to the side. But just the word fulfillment has to do with this idea of enrichment. It's the idea that there's something missing. The, the world is in need of something. And, and for Christ to fulfill it, it means the world has just been blessed or, or blown up because it was deflated. It was deficient. And every time Christ fulfills a prophecy, the world just becomes more rich. Because that episode, that event, that birth or that crucifixion or resurrection, the world was missing it and it needs it to be whole and healthy. Fulfillment. 
And it really plays into the idea just that sometimes when we witness to people, we'll say, have you ever felt like something's missing in your heart? And we'll use that because something is missing. And the whole salvation experience is when Christ comes in and fills the hole in our heart that wasn't there, that was there because Christ wasn't there. And as that song said um, in so many words, that we need to walk with Christ. We need Christ in our life. We need the glory of Christ. So it's that fulfillment and that enrichment. Just by... Understanding these prophecies, our hearts are enriched and our souls are enriched and the world is enriched. So these prophecies are incredible. Uh, Our minds really, we can't wrap our minds around how much had to take place in order for these prophecies to be fulfilled. But they also rule out imposters. Because in order to be the king, the promised Messiah, you have to fit the bill. You have to have all these credentials Christ did. Imposters don't. And Scripture warns us that false messiahs will come. I'm God. I'm Christ. I'm the deliverer. You know, as I speak even this very day, it's not just biblical stuff. Even this very day, there are people in this world that claim to be God or a form of God. And that's sad to me. But what is even sadder to me is that there are people that are following them and believe this. They're so desperate. And I guess I would say there's such a big vacancy there in the heart and the mind. So much is missing that they're willing to believe so many lies. If somebody can just make them have this certain feeling, they might think, well, that's what I'm missing. That's what I need. I'm going to follow this Messiah or this God. It just boggles my mind when how we fall prey To ridiculous lies. And we do. Sometimes because we're blinded by sin or we're just so desperate. What we really need is Christ. These prophecies rule out the false messiahs. Well, this morning we're going to look. We've we've looked at the birth at Bethlehem. And we've looked at being called out of Egypt. A prototype for salvation. And now we're going to look at Rama. Verses 16 to 18. Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or older or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud. Lamentation, loud weeping, loud crying. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Whole reason Jesus fled Egypt, of course, is because Herod is after him. And I introduce you to Herod. Uh, Smart guy, wise guy, very tactful politician, but he's a maniac. He's bloodthirsty and he has this terrible idol. And it's called power. Wanting to be in control. He loves his kingdom. The Romans gave him title, King of the Jews. He embraced it. He wants it. And so it's mine, mine, mine. And uh, this little baby can't have it. He's not going to be king. 
And he goes into jealous rage as he kills his own family members. Anything that threatens that idol, he loves it so much. It doesn't matter that this little baby is supposed to be sent from God, not just some man-made king, but sent from God. He's got to go. And so Jesus flees for his life. Isn't it interesting as powerful as God is and all the different ways that God had could have protected his precious son? I mean, he could have put bubble wrap around him and the world wouldn't touch him and he could never get hurt. He's got to flee from this. He put him down in this filthy, messy, sinful, evil world. And even the son of God wasn't spared from that. He's got to make the trip just like we would step by step. And the danger is just as real as if we were being hunted. So he has to flee. And it's God's protection for him. That, that was God's protection. Instead of the bubble wrap, it was a dream that his dad had. Well, Herod is furious in this passage. Herod can't think straight when he's sober. He can't think straight when he's happy. He's wicked. His mind is twisted. But now he is really off the mark because he is in a rage. He feels like he's been duped. He's been tricked by these wise men. He tried to talk them into telling them exactly where the baby was. That maybe way he could have just killed one and it would have been over. But no, they tricked him. And his kingdom's threatened. And so that which these thoughts come to him, thoughts that should have been filtered Thoughts that came to his mind, his mind, and he should have said, oh, no, I can't do that. That's going too far. He doesn't check those thoughts. He is so, the power in the kingdom is such an idol to him. He loves it so much. He has these thoughts come to his mind. Instead of filtering them, saying, I cannot take it that far, he says, yes, that's what I need to do. I need to get rid of any chance that this king will live another day. Any threat to my idol. Isn't it interesting how idols work? Things that we love so much and thoughts come to our minds and, and, and we should say, oh, no, I can't do that. That's taking it too far. But instead of doing that and filtering it out and having a conscience and obeying the Lord, we say, yes, that's exactly what I need to do to keep this idol. That's called worship. Herod is a dedicated worshiper, is he not? Boy, is he so dedicated that he will not stop at anything to protect his idol of power and control. So he sends his soldiers and he's got an army. And he sends them out like dogs to hunt what? Babies. They are hunting babies, little babies. And we think Jesus was maybe four, six months at this time, six months old. But just I'm assuming just to make sure all his bases are covered, he's going to he's going to go way higher than that. He's going to make his mark at two years old. It's way too old, but I don't want any threat. He loses his soldiers like dogs to hunt them down. And so, you know. Uh, Rama is north of Jerusalem. It's just a, um, a small place. I think about five miles north. And it's a, more like a village. 
And so he, he's coming into this village, the, or at least his army is, his soldiers. And they're going from household to household. You can picture this in your mind, the rustic area and the setting. It's maybe a thousand people because it's the same area close to Bethlehem. And they're going door to door, hunting these children down. And they're, they're questioning people. Who lives here? Everybody out. We're taking an inventory. Do you have any children, two and under? I want to see them. And they take them. And you can just imagine. You know what happens. Somebody shows up at your house to take your children. What are you going to do? You're going to stiffen up. You're going to say, no, this can't be happening. This is my child. Two years old and younger. You can envision children being ripped out of even the death grip of moms. You've seen that death grip. Moms are so fragile until you mess with, with the babies. Then try to do something. All of a sudden, they they got gorilla strength. But there's soldiers there. Now, this, is, this really happened. There, there's, there's gut-wrenching tears. Real people losing their babies, their brothers, their sisters. The soldiers ripped them out of the mother's arms. They are armed with swords, daggers. They cut them. They pierce them to the death. And that's why the scripture says they're no more. They're not coming back. That's it. Their life is snuffed out. And that's what happened. Rama or Bethlehem near Israel. He sent this army to execute the Messiah. Small population like that, the whole village would be rocked. What are we talking? 20 families maybe would have children in that age group. 20, give or take, 5, 10. So everybody knows everybody in this village. I mean, you, you just lost somebody that you knew. Probably you just lost a baby that you rejoiced over. Recently born. Everybody would be affected. Just like today when massacres happen in our society. We are rocked. And it says if Matthew wants us to know something. You know this is, a, this is supposed to be the story of a birth. Why such tragedy? I mean you know how we react. We're so excited when someone gets Pregnant and they're expecting and the baby is born and we have showers and gifts and we can't wait to get our hands on them and hold them. And it's just happiness, happiness, happiness. And yet Matthew adds this tragedy. And it's to show us, I think, it's to show us that, yes, he's the king and he's God's son. And he's the world's hope. But look what he was born into. Evil, wicked world. People after him all the time. Hatred, unbelief, violence, rejection. That's the life he will live. It's not all roses. It's not all rainbows. That's what we need to expect as we look at Matthew. And that's the world that we live in and we're a part of it. And sometimes we're the ones that are doing the rejecting and the violence and the hatred. And sometimes we're the ones with the unbelief. That's what he will face. But the main reason. It's not to just mention this tragedy. He's not bringing up tragedy to ruin the beautiful birth of Christ. And 
Christmas story. He's bringing it up specifically because it fulfills prophecy. He wants us to know that. It's a credential. Guys, make the connection that he's making. This is the promised king. Where do we find this prophecy? Well, he said Jeremiah. Specifically, it's Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Here's how Jeremiah put it in the Old Testament. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel's weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Matthew's the only one that records this, by the way. What does this have to do with Jesus? Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the what prophet? Weeping prophet. I'm assuming he was an emotional guy. Uh, There were prophets that said a lot of things and and didn't cry as much as Jeremiah. And there's some people are just emotional. It affects people differently. Uh, He was a weeping prophet. Thirty chapters of his book are basically gloom and doom. And he was a prophet to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had already been taken captive by Assyria and spread out. Southern kingdom was still there, but they were in sin. They were following idols, loving on their idols. And God sent this man, Jeremiah, to warn them and say, look, if you stay on this course, here's what's going to happen. And he gets specific. He doesn't just say, look. Trouble's coming your way. He says, look, you will be ripped out of this land, this house that you live in, the bed that you sleep in. It's gone. The family that, you know, gone. You're going to be relocated. You're going to be conquered by a foreign king. You're not going to be able to live this kind of life. You're not going to be able to worship God like this or to reject God like this. It's all going to change. And it was personal for him because this is his land and his people. And he goes on with specific doom. It's coming. Repent. And he weeps and he cries and he just bawls because they don't listen. No matter what he says, no matter matter how dark and gloomy, it doesn't shake them. They're just like, okay, whatever. And so he cries. He cries because he can just see it happening. He sees the people that he loves and the land that he loves gone, devastated. And he just cries and cries and cries. And I'm sure there are people that walked by him or heard him and, you know, whatever, indifferent, and, and might have wondered, you know, Jeremiah, why are you crying? And I would think Jeremiah would say, why aren't you crying? Why aren't you crying? Don't you see what's happening? Can't you connect the dots? You cannot live this way as the people of God and not expect devastation and judgment to come. God is true to his word. Now, we have fellow believers, Christians that may be more like Jeremiah than other prophets. Some of the prophets were cold hearted. Jonah. He didn't want to go warn anybody. Jeremiah was willing to do it. Jonah's like, ah, let him die. Let him be judged. Kind of actually, I'm kind of, I'd like to see it. They got it coming to him. Jeremiah was passionate. I'm sure there's people that wonder, say the same thing. Why aren't you crying? Why aren't you grieving? Can't you see the state of today's church? 
Why aren't you moved? Why aren't you moved? How can you just walk by and do nothing? Can't you see what's coming? Can't you see how Christ is being rejected and the Father is grieving over the sin and the apathy and the indifference? How can you not be crying? I know there's people in this congregation that are wondering that about us. Maybe those that aren't as emotional or affected. There's a place for all. God uses the emotional. God uses those that see things so clearly to warn the rest of us that perhaps aren't. Interesting thing about Jeremiah's book is that the first 30 verses are gloom and doom. If you want to read it, go for it. Then you get to 31 and, and, and then you turn the page and something happens. All of a sudden, in the midst of gloom and doom, he starts painting a picture of hope and joy. I mean, it's just darkness and clouds and gloominess. And then all of a sudden, he turns a page and he, he brings out something new to paint on. And, and he wants the people to rejoice. The sun's out now. In the middle of these, I think it's chapters 30 to 33, in the middle of these three chapters of encouragement and rejoicing, this is where this prophecy is found. One of the gloomiest pictures that you could ever paint is found in, in the middle of these chapters of joy. How do you make that connection? Just uh, the, the weeping and lamenting and bitter crying is in verse 15. Here's verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. The things are changing a little bit. So now uh, Jeremiah is saying, yeah, cry over the destruction. Oh, it's going to be real and painful. It is real and painful. But there's a time to stop crying because... There's also something to be happy about. God's still God. And he's going to restore this. And there'll come a day when your people will be back. They'll come back and you can worship and rejoice. They'll be singing and dancing and family uh, love and relationships and marriages and parties and festivals and everything. It'll come again. So don't just get stuck on this, though it is very real. Verse 31 of all things, that's where he talks about the new covenant. Where God and man will be united through Christ. will be given new hearts and it's no turning back after that. Here's what the last verse says. Verse 40. He says, it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. That's what I'm talking about. A promise from God. And he's saying, oh, there's loss and there's pain. Yeah, and things that you've loved have been ripped out of your hands. But there's coming a day and rejoice for it, long for it and be happy. There's coming a day when you will no longer suffer this kind of loss. And the things that you love so much, the good things of this world, they're not going to be taken from you. You're not going to be robbed and gypped with all the injustices and those that are bigger or stronger than you taking your things. And all the evil and the sin, it will be stopped. 
That's the day I'm longing for. That's the day that's on the way. That's the day that we need to keep an eye on, Jeremiah is saying. All is not lost. As painful as this day is. Weep? Yes. But rejoice. And by the way, we know, because we just did Ezra and Nehemiah and looked at that. God brought the remnant back and they rebuilt. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt their lives. The walls. They were a strong people again in the city. And singing came back. Families were restored. Not original. But families were restored to people of God. And there's going to be a goodness, he's saying, that's going to come. It's not temporary. It's not just until the next tragedy comes. There's just going to be this incredible, unfathomable goodness that comes and stays. And we'll probably be, when we get there in heaven, kind of be like, well, I don't know. Maybe my imagination is going crazy, but like, can it really be this good? Like every day? This good. Hope I don't botch this too much, but Lisa shared with me something that was on Facebook by um, one of the rank girls. I'm not sure which one, but they, sorry if I misquote you, something to the effect of, um, uh, I, the only thing wrong with having birthdays is that tomorrow won't be my birthday. No. Something like that. And, it, and, and it's profound because the idea is, man, today is awesome. I am loving it. But she thought, uh oh, but tomorrow it'll, it'll be gone. You can't have your birthday every day. That's the, the world that exists now. And what Christ is building is that day. That is every day. It just, it, it's good and it stays good. There's no loss. There's no leaving. No fear of any of that. And the Messiah will usher in this new era. Never again weeping. Never again mourning. It's a contract and a promise that actually works. You ever been made promises by big powerful businesses and entered into contracts with them and then you're disappointed things change oh yeah we change that uh, this, this promise how can these promises be made and actually kept who is capable of making such promises god only the god of scripture only the god that we are here today to worship can make these kind of promises. Rama, little town north of Jerusalem in the territory of Benjamin. Why is it in Scripture? Well, it's pretty much totally insignificant. There's nothing special about it except when the kingdom divided into north, northern, and southern. Some tribes stayed up north and did things their way. The other tribes stayed down south, did things their way. At that time, the northern kingdom was in more rebellion uh, than the southern kingdom. But anyway, they had to draw a line between the two, to two kingdoms to say, what kingdom are you in? And guess where that, law, that line was drawn? Right there in Ramah. 
So it's no significance, little village, except now the line is drawn in the sand, if you will, of the difference or the, the dividing line between the two kingdoms. First Kings 1.17, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah, built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come into Ace to the king of Judah. So here's a line in the sand. You got to decide what kingdom you're for, and you can't go in and out, hopping back and forth. Here's the alliance at Ramah. You're either for the north or for your south. Make your choice. Stay there. You're not going back and forth. So that's one uh, reason that it's significant. Here's how it comes into play with Matthew's gospel. <clears throat> when Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled, all the tears he cried, when it actually happened, the enemies came in. Of course, by this time, he's prophesying to the southerners. To, so y'all need to repent. The northern kingdom is already gone. They didn't repent. The Babylonians came in, and we know the story. They devastated the land. And uh, it's not a pretty sight. What happens is, is, you know, we read it, but we don't realize how strategic uh, these things are. If you're in the military, you know there's so much more behind the scenes. You don't just whoop people. You don't just conquer them. You have plans for them, and it's orderly, and there's administration that takes place. Well, here's what they did. Because of this line represented kind of the, the midway between both kingdoms, this is just so happens where the conquering kings would bring the conquered Israelites to Ramah and they would stage them and they would decide what they're going to do with who there. They've got a purpose for them. They've already got plans on what to do with the conquered people. And just conquer them and say, uh, what are we going to do with all these people? They bring them there and they stage them. This is the place where families were ripped apart. Daniel, the, you know, the wise ones would go to this direction. They were carted off here. Children of other certain ages would go here because they would be slaves or whatever. The elderly would go here. This is a place where families were literally ripped apart. Think, think Holocaust. Think the train scenes that we see in movies. People ripped out of their parents' arms. Siblings ripped apart from each other because there's plans for different people at different ages. So it's right here at this spot where there was literally, previous to the birth of Christ, there were mothers weeping bitterly over the loss of their children because they were ripped out of their arms, never to be seen again. How does Rachel come into all of this? Rachel is, was Jacob's wife. Thanks to Uncle Laban, Jacob got the two-for-one deal, and he married Leah and Rachel. Uh, and both gave him children, but Rachel was the one that had his heart and no uncertain terms. You, he made it clear, poor Leah. Even God felt pity for Leah. And um, so, basically, she's kind of the real wife. She is the mother of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. She had children. Some of them represented the northern kingdom. Some of them represented the southern kingdom, you know, the 12 tribes. So in, in, from the Bible's perspective, Rachel's the mother of God's children. And Rachel was the one that really loved babies, if you will. 
Rachel's the one that told Jacob, if I don't have children, I will die. Later on, God opened her womb. At first, he didn't. Okay, so she represents Israel. She represents the mother that loves children, that has to have children. And so Jeremiah paints this picture of the mother of Israel in Ramah. And these children are being ripped out of their mother's hands and carted all over the place into a foreign territory. A place where they don't even worship God. And there is Rachel saying, not my babies, not my babies. That's what Jeremiah is telling us. And we see it again. The birth of Christ. These babies don't even know the significance of the part that they're playing in the fulfillment of prophecy of the king. Mothers. So Rama is this place. It's scarred with sadness and sorrow. So the moms, you can imagine the sadness and, and the scars that this place would leave. Matthew uh, capitalizes on this picture. But we've got to realize that just like with Jeremiah, it didn't just stop with the weeping. There's joy. There's chapters of joy. And, and the joy is Matthew is trying to help us see that we can't stay in our tears. Because of the arrival of the newborn king, there is reason to rejoice and there is hope of restoration. He's saying, remember the hope, remember the Savior, remember the Messiah. He's going to save a remnant. He's got his people. He always has his people. And guess what? It doesn't depend on them and their behavior. It depends on the love and the grace of God. And so even as wicked as Israel was, and they didn't even repent, God restored them. He brought them back because he's God. So don't lose hope. Christ will turn things around. Yes, in the midst of so much lost. And I just got to say, as New Testament believers, we have to have hope. We have to have hope. It's not an option. We have to have the hope of glory in our midst because we live in the same wicked world that Christ was born into. And we see the same heinous things and some of them come from our own hearts and we stand in disbelief at things we think. Do you ever have a thought and think, oh, my goodness, where did that come from? My mind or maybe even an action. But we see others. It's wicked and it's cruel and it's twisted. Oh, our culture's so twisted and it's not getting any better right now. And we have suffered loss in this world. Perhaps even some of us have, have lost a child. And if not, then we see sin destroying our families, ripping relationships apart, ripping marriages apart, rip, ripping siblings apart. It's loss and it causes us to shed tears. But we have to be able to keep an eye on that hope at the same time. The Apostle Paul 
knows trouble, he knows tragedy, he knows suffering, and he gives us a litany in one of his epistles of all things that happened to him because he made the decision to follow Christ. And the guy's got nine lives like a cat. He'd been whipped, he'd been, he'd been stoned to death, comes back out. Been betrayed, been shipwrecked, he starved. Everything you can imagine, every form of suffering and torture. But in this epistle, and he says, I'm low and I could sit here and I could show you all the scars of the things I really experienced. And did they really hurt? Yes, they really hurt. But he says, I was this low, but I wasn't this low. What's this low? I did not despair. He refused to despair. Why? Because of the hope of glory. He was able to always through this know that God is there and be able to see the beauty that exists in the midst of the tragedy and the trials. And we use this illustration today. I've used it to people who are suffering. And we say, you know, behind the, the cloud in real life, if it's supposed to rain, we'll see uh, shortly anyway, it gets real gloomy. Overcast, and you think, ah, too much of that, and you, it actually affects my personality. I start getting gloomy with the clouds. I, I need, I need uh, clear skies and sun. But we'll say, behind that dark cloud, you know what? The sun is shining just as bright as it ever did. And it, and it reminds us that there um, is goodness still existing. Take it a step farther. Behind that sun that's still shining, behind the cloud and behind that sun, there is a real place. It is heaven. And as I speak, uh, I said earlier, as I speak, there are people worshiping false gods. And how sad that is. As I speak, there is a festival of praise and worship going on. Whereby the creatures of heaven are praising God for all they're worth. That's why they were created. Whoever else is up there is, is worshiping God. They are filled with, with Christ. They are filled with joy. They are enriched. They're already experiencing what we hope for. And so we have to have the ears that can hear. And be able to hear the praise or say the choir of the angels. So that we do not despair and lose hope. We have to know what's going on. Simultaneously or concurrently. So we do not lose hope. And so Matthew wants us to know the king's here. What does he do? He restores. He heals. He builds back. He brings wholeness out of that which was ripped out of your arms. Things that you love. Yes, even the good things. Have to be able to maintain that proper picture and press on to know this king of glory. I know that there are many of us here suffering physically, wondering if they can bear up. Many here suffering spiritually. Uh, many here whose lives are people that you know, loved ones. Things are just being ripped apart. Good things, wholesome things, ripped apart because of sin. And the pain is real. And you could stand up here and show us your scars. We have to be able to maintain the reality of the joy that is here and the joy that is coming. And that is Christ. The King reigns. He is rebuilding His kingdom. And he will reign and rule over 
all things. Can we do that? Because that's our hope. We have to do that or we will despair. And now that my time is up, my second point is uh, verse 23. Be short as possible. In other words, no commitment. I'm just going to get through this. Verse 23, the fourth prophecy. He went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Herod's dead. It's safe for him to come back to Jerusalem or Judea. And uh, so he's on his way back. But Joseph is warned in another dream. Don't stay in Jerusalem. It's not safe there. You've got to go farther north. It's not safe there because Herod died. But now his two sons, they divided that little kingdom. And his two sons are reigning over it. Archelaus in the south. Antipas in the north, the Galilean region, uh, Archelaus in the southern region of Judea. Archelaus turns out becomes even more wicked than his father. So hated, feared and wicked that even the Romans get tired of him and put somebody in his place. A name that we will become familiar with in the book of Matthew. Not too long from now, man by the name of Pontius Pilate. So Jesus has to go farther north in order to be safe because Jerusalem is not safe under Archelaus. Archelaus is wicked. He also slaughters people. Going to make a long story short, just a few minutes, and then we'll close. Uh, Herod had this great idea. He's going to make this golden eagle to honor Rome. It's a sign of Rome, the eagle. Um, And he's going to put it on the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. So that's what he does, fashions this golden eagle, puts it on the gate of the temple of Jerusalem. And as you can imagine, that didn't sit well with the Jews. There's an uproar uh, that we can't have this. That's foreign gods. And God says, we can't have any of this stuff in the temple. It's worship on other gods and it represents the gods of Rome and then Rome and so forth. So two teachers, I believe their names were Judas and Matthias, though not the ones in Scripture. Anyway, they... Tell their college age students, their disciples, uh, does that bother you as much as it bothers me? Of course, yeah, you know, college age doesn't take anything to get those guys going. Yeah. And are you just going to sit here? Are you going to do something about it in essence? And they say, we're going to do something about it. So they climb up on the gate and they have their their knives or their swords or whatever. They're trying to hack this thing down. Well, in the meantime, um, Herod died and Archelaus is now in command. Uh, and so when Herod was alive, I'm sorry, when Herod was alive, what he did is he let the students go, but he killed the two teachers. Well, then Archelaus comes into power and Israel's like, well, we don't like those teachers being killed. So we're going to revolt and rebel again. And so they do. And Archelaus has 3000 of them just slaughtered. Most of them were innocent. They were happened to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. They didn't even know what was going on. Next thing you know, they're gone. So that's why it's not safe for Jesus. Um, what's God doing in these world events? How, why is all this stuff happening just so in the way it happens? Well, he's sending his son to the city of Nazareth that he may fulfill a prophecy or a promise. Uh, what prophet made this promise? What prophet made the promise that he will be called a Nazarene? Who does Matthew say? He says the prophets. Which one? Extra credit if you can figure it out. You get to cut the grass for a month 
if you figure this out. Let me save you some time. It's not in there. You never find it. It's one of those things where the prophets say it. Everybody knows it, but he didn't make a reference to it. It's just the prophets. You say, well, wait a minute. Does Matthew know his Bible? How could he say that? Well, Matthew's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's Scripture, so now it's Scripture. Uh, there are other times in Scripture where things are referenced and you can't find them. How about the one in Jude about Enoch? Enoch said the Lord's going to send, was it thousands of angels in judgment? Find that in the Bible where Enoch said it. You won't find it. Or even more relevant, uh, remember when the Apostle Paul says, as Jesus said, it's more, it's better, to, it's, uh, I want to say more better. It's better to give, to receive. More blessed to, to give than receive. Find where Jesus said that. You won't find it. And how do you know it's scripture? Well, because this is the New Testament and they are speaking the word of God. So people knew what Matthew was talking about. Why Nazareth? 45 miles, even farther north of Jerusalem. John MacArthur says the people of this place were rude, violent, crude, uneducated, had a lousy reputation. In fact, even nice, good, wholesome, healthy, righteous, godly people like Nathaniel wondered whether anything good, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Huh? This guy, uh, he's actually he's got good manners and he's smart. I didn't know anything good, good could come out of that place. When Jesus went there in Mark 6, 6, it says he marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at it. They had a lack of response to him, a lack of interest in righteousness. But that was to be the place where righteous Joseph and Mary and righteous as God, Jesus would live for 30 years. The place was so despised at Nazareth and Nazarene became a synonym for somebody despised. If you wanted to cut somebody down, you call him a Nazarene. It's like call him a no good low life. So what's the significance of that? Well, it's to show us that Jesus is going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. It's prophesied in the Psalms, prophesied in Isaiah. We read about it in every uh, Easter, Monday, Thursday. He'll be pierced. He's despised. He's rejected. He was born in Bethlehem, but they don't call him a Bethlehemite. They call him a Nazarite. A low life. A good for nothing. John MacArthur says, Nazareth would furnish him with the name Jesus the Nazarene. That would furnish him with the title of reproach which God predicted would come. He was despised, rejected, and finally killed. The Nazarene. Nazareth stands for rejection. Whether it's Herod whether it's chief priests, whether it's somebody among us, he will be rejected. So these four prophecies, they give us hope. They bring us down into real life. They remind us of sin and loss and mourning. But with the Messiah, with this newborn king, there is always hope. There's, it gives our souls more reason to boast in our God. Matthew said, Micah said the king will come out of Bethlehem, and out of Bethlehem he came. Micah 5 2. Hosea 11 1 said the son will be called out of Egypt, and out of Egypt he was called. And Jeremiah said there will be mourning in this place again in Ramah, and there was weeping, loud weeping in Ramah. 
And the prophet said that he will be called a Nazarene, and a Nazarene he was called. Each prophecy points to and solidifies his credentials to reign and rule as king, to be worshipped, to be adored, to give gifts to, to give honor and glory to. So our challenge is to hail Christ the King. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.